Great Gildersleeve. Dot <laughs> <laughs> presents Hollywood. Now cut that out. <laughs> Rocky Jordan. I'm Rocky Jordan. Leonardo Cairo in the Cafe Tambourine for a world of adventure with Rocky Jordan. Let's say she was attractive, very attractive, as she stood framed in the doorway of my Cafe Tambourine. She made a real pretty picture standing there as she looked for someone inside. Even Chris, my bartender, stopped work to take a look. How are we to know that just outside in the darkness lurked a figure with a loaded gun? The Cafe Tambourine, crowded with tourists, camel drivers, women, cheats, forgotten men down on their luck, the lonely and the lost. For this is Cairo, gateway to the ancient east where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. Tonight's Rocky Jordan story, Pattern for Revenge. It was getting along towards midnight, but business in the tambourine was still booming. I just stepped over to help behind the bar when I saw her come in the front door. Young, 22 or 3 maybe, blonde and pretty in a brown suit with hat and gloves to match. She glanced nervously around, saw what she wanted, and headed for a back table where a guy about her age was finishing up his fifth double bourbon. Right away, a big argument started, and I moved toward and the front, figuring to keep out of it, but then she turned, looking for help. So I waved the waiter away and went back myself. I stay here. Get out like I say. I told you I stay here. Uh, anything I can do, lady? Why, oh, I'm most sorry, monsieur. Please, Jacques, we must go. The, the gentleman will help you. I do not need help. I know what I'm to do. What's he talking about? He does not know what he's saying. If you would assist him to a taxi. Oh, I sure. All right, Jacques. Everything's all right. Up we go. Do not touch me, Jordan. Let me go, all right? Oh, Jacques. Jacques, please. He can't hear you. Had one too many, lady. He's passed out. Oh, there's a cot back in my office. We'll put him there for a while. Uh, are you sure he will be all right? Sure. All he needs is some sleep. You just run along. I'll let you know when he feels better. Oh, very well, monsieur. Uh, I, I am Roxanne Bellon. Jacques is my husband. I will be at our room at the Hotel Royal. You will call them? Sure. Just don't worry. Thank you. Thank you so much. Roxanne Bellon quickly turned and went out. A couple of the waiters and I carried her husband back to the office and laid him out on the cot. I sent the waiters back to their jobs and was about to go out front again myself when the phone opened up. 
Uh, tambourine, Jordan speaking. <laughs> Hello, who is this? It has been a long time. A very long time. Has it not, Jordan? Hey, what's it about? Who are you? You do not know them. Why should I? Come on, get to the point. Jordan, your time is running out. Start counting the hours and the minutes. You do not know where or when it will come. Look, if this is a bum joke, cut it off. Joke? <laughs> joke? You shall learn only too soon. All right, tell me all about it. Revenge, Jordan, revenge. A debt long overdue. Payable with debt. What? Hello. Hello. Oh, great. All right, hello. I can hear you, Mr. Jordan. Oh, I'm sorry. I expected somebody else. Who's this? I'm Lieutenant Haman of the Cairo Police. Hey, what can I do for you, Lieutenant? I must talk with you, most urgently. Well, go on. I'm listening. At headquarters, Mr. Jordan, as soon as possible. Oh, it's a busy night here, Lieutenant. I get customers. This is for your own good, Mr. Jordan. Now, will you come at once, or shall I send for you? All right. I'll be right over. <laughs> Well, Mr. Jones, you are wise to come directly here. Uh, just supposing we get to the point, Lieutenant. We shall, just as soon as you've told me if you know of any recent threats to your life. No more than usual. Why? I have here a slip of paper on which are written the names of four men of Cairo. The first... Three names are crossed off. I got an idea with the force. A moment. The men whose names are crossed off are now dead. Victims of violent murder. Where did this come from? It was found on the body of the most recent victim only tonight. Go on. It is not the first list of this kind to be found. On each person killed was such a list. With each man already dead crossed off and a new name added as the next intended victim, left her undoubtedly by the murderer. Yeah. Somebody's playing quite a game. As you say, this is the work of a warped mentality, someone with a fixation of vengeance, perhaps. One intent not only on murder, but in striking terror into the heart of his next victim. All right, Lieutenant, get it over with. On the list found tonight is added a new name, one yet to be crossed off. The name of Rocky Jordan. I thought so. Hey, let me see that list. No one is to see it, Mr. Jordan. Look, if I'm next, I've got to know some things so I can take care of myself. I fully intend that you do, but I'm taking no chances. Sergeant Greco, step in, please. At once, Lieutenant Amman. Hello, Greco. Uh, good evening, Mr. Jordan. Now, Greco. Uh, Lieutenant Amman. Uh, if you will permit me, I have given much thought to this matter of the killings. Uh, should you see fit to assign me to the case? Uh, that I am doing. I have a task for you. You may place full trust in me. Good. Then until further notice, you will accompany Mr. Jordan as his bodyguard. What? What? Oh, save it. Call it off. I don't need Greco tagging along. Lieutenant... Uh, uh, Lieutenant, would not one with less experience in more important matters, a man new to the force, perhaps? Enough, Greco. That will be all. Your command, Lieutenant Haman, at your service, 
Mr. Jordan. I gave it up, too, and went on out with Greco following sullenly behind. Well, if that's the way the lieutenant wanted it, so did I. Only now I knew the threatening phone call had been nobody's joke. When we got back to the tambourine, it was closed. I unlocked the front door, and when I started inside, Greco moved to follow. Now, now, this is as far as you go. I have my orders, Mr. Jordan. I am to stay with you. I happen to know the law. I say you stay here in the street unless you want to get a warrant. Very well. But I warn you, do not attempt to leave your cup tea without me. I will be here waiting. I don't sleep on it. Pleasant dreams, Greco. I started back through the cafe, not bothering to turn on the light. I was halfway back when I remembered Jacques Delon, the drunk I'd left in my cot in the office. It was two steps farther when it happened. The shots came from behind my office door. Right away, I was running back, slamming open the door just in time to hear somebody scramble out the back door to the alley. I don't generally go chasing after people with guns. I got to the alley just in time to hear fleeing footsteps. The figure faded into the night. Then I heard heavier footsteps coming the other way. It's me, Greco. Step it up, will you? Get after that guy. He's heading for the Sharia Farafra. He's all yours. I, I saw no one go that way. Don't take my word for it. Now get going. I had my express orders, Mr. Jordan. They are to stay with you. Yeah, it'll take more than that to win a promotion. Enough. Now I demand to know what the shooting was about. Okay, Greco, come on. We'll both find out. We went back inside my office by the alley door, and there I cut a light. Yeah, my guest was still on the cot. He hadn't moved. And it wasn't hard to realize exactly what had happened. I knew that all three shots fired at close range into the body of Jacques Bellon had been meant for me. Well, we were sure of just two things. First, that there was a maniac loose in Cairo with a well-laid-out plan for killing a lot of people. Just why was anybody's guess. Second, that I was supposed to be his next victim. Only now, Jacques Bellon, lying dead in my office, had been the innocent victim of the shot intended for me. Right away, Sergeant Greco was his officious self. He planted himself between me and Bellon and told me to call Lieutenant Haman. And I did. Only while I was on the phone, Greco didn't know I saw him quickly fly a wad of paper fingers of the victim, unfold it, read it, quickly shove it in his pocket. It wasn't long until Lieutenant Haman came striding in with several of his uniformed men. All right, stay by the entrances, all of you. Yes, Lieutenant. Now, Greco. The victim lies here on the coast. I did not permit Mr. Jordan to touch him. That's right, Lieutenant. Greco should win a lot of stripes. You will keep silent until spoken to, Mr. Jordan? Yeah, maybe you'd like for me to keep quiet. Wait a moment, both of you. Now, Mr. Jordan, about this man today. Well, I just came in the front way when I heard the shots. When I get back here, somebody was ducking out the alley door. Greco, where were you at this time? It will interest you to know that Mr. Jordan was most uncooperative. He did not permit me to enter the building. Was his right? However... Ask Greg, I'll tell the rest of it. He had plenty of chance to go after the killer. That is his story, Lieutenant. I saw no one. Besides, it was my task to see to Mr. Jordan's welfare. Oh, yeah, you took care of me fine. All right, enough of this. You see what his pockets sold. 
In the meantime, Mr. Jordan, what do you know of this man? His name's Jacques Bellon. He's drinking in my cafe and got more than he could hold. Put him on the cot there to sleep it off. Never had a chance to wake up. Mm-hmm. There's a card here in his wallet. You are correct about his name. And his wife's waiting for him at the Hotel Royale. That's regrettable. Small gun in his pocket. Not far. Oh, lots of people carry guns. As you say, you will realize now that my warning to you was well advised. But sure, but what about the rest? I want some information. Mr. Jordan, the police are quite capable. Look, all I know is that Jacques Ballard would be alive right now if it hadn't been for me. You have no reason to feel irresponsible. I don't see it that way. But the least you can do is give me the names of the others on that list, the others who were killed. Very well. I'll read them to you. First is the name of Ali Alkar, a shoemaker. Next, El Farum, a pasha. And finally, Benny Christian, a Coptic. Well, shoemaker, pasha, a Coptic, and me, you can't fail, but they ought to mean something. Then you do not remember. What possible relationship did those men have with each other? Order would kill her. I'm going to hunt you now. I do, Mr. Jordan. But I've told you enough. And now, something puzzles me. What? Were this killing according to the pattern, we would have found a new list on Jacques Bellon, naming the next intended victim. There was none here. Unless it was taken before I arrived. Uh, uh, Hammond, uh, may I presume to suggest once again that I might be of value to this case. Uh, wait a minute, Gregor. You're not going anywhere. You're my bodyguard, remember? Oh. <laughs> well, most interesting change of heart for you, Mr. Jordan. But it is my full intention that he stay with you. And this time, Greco, do not let him out of your sight. Your command, Lieutenant Hammond. Once the killer learns of his mistake, he will most surely return. The lieutenant checked around the office some more, and finally the body of Jacques Delon was taken away. That left me with a job I didn't want but couldn't escape, a trip to the Hotel Royale to see Roxanne. Greco trailed along, but now he was silent, and his glance avoided my eyes. Ordinarily, I'd have felt like laughing at him, but not this time. It was almost morning when I knocked at Roxanne's door. After a little wait, she opened, clutching a dressing gown around her. Oh, Monsieur Jordan... Come in. Thank you. You've been told, Roxanne? Yes. Yes, I know. Who is this with you? Nobody, just my bodyguard. Bodyguard? I uh, had to set something straight in your mind about your husband. Oh, please, I do not blame you. Maybe you should. Jacques had nothing to do with his death. Those shots were meant for me. For you? That's right. Somebody thought he was killing me, not your husband. Oh, but... But how can you be sure? Did you have a different idea? Oh, I know it, except that... Uh, Monsieur Jordan, I, I must confess that recently Jacques and I were not happy. Well, you don't have to say anything you don't want. Oh, but I must talk to someone. Jacques and I have been married but a short time. I knew little of his life before, and, and it did not matter. He was very devoted. But recently... A change came over him. Mm-hmm. He was nervous and upset, as if he were frightened. Frightened of what, Roxanne? Oh, I do not know. Also, he began drinking. The bottle was with him always. And 
And she would go away at nights, refusing to say where. I, I did everything I could. I, I had been searching for him when I found him at your cafe tonight. And as you saw, he would not come with me. Well, that must have been about something else. Believe me, if I'd known there was any danger... You need not feel that way. What is done is done. But if I could help now with money, you're... There is money, and and that is something else, Monsieur Jordan. Yeah? Look, I I will show you. In this drawer. Mm, Some other cash to have lying around. Yet it is there. And I do not know where it came from. Let's just say your husband was a good provider. Look, Roxanne, somehow I'm going to square all this. You need not do it for me, monsieur. Then let's just say I'm doing it for shock. By the time I unlocked the tambourine door, it was broad daylight. This time I let Greco come on in. I had reasons for keeping him with me for now. Just as we got inside, the phone opened up. We both headed to the office, and all at once, Greco got real busy again. It is possibly from headquarters. I will take No, it. no, you don't, Greco. Sir Fulton, I insist. Hello, tambourine. Jordan speaking. <laughs> Who is it, Mr. Fulton? it, Greco. Hello. You seem to have lived a charmed life, Jordan. But now your luck has run out. Keep talking, mister. Death can strike many times. It is quite useless for you to hope that I will fail again. Mr. Jordan, I command you to give me that phone. All right, Greg. Go take it. He's all yours. Hello? This is Sergeant Greco of the Cairo Police. Who is there? Hello? Hello? That little scuffle with Greco was what I've been waiting for. The chance to reach in his pocket and pull out the slip of paper he palmed off the body of Jacques Bellon. I had no time to look at it before Greco turned from the phone. The caller had hung up as I knew it would. It was my move now, but first I had to shake Greco. Right away, I was out on the street, walking fast with a protesting Greco at my elbow. In a little while, I'd led him into the Chiffon Bazaar, where shops had already opened for the day and the crowds were moving in. I kept going until Greco began to puff a little, and then I was suddenly running. Wait! Greco has a way of pushing people rather than trying to go around them, and he was soon floundering in the crowds far behind. When I was sure he was off my trail, I stopped in the doorway for a quick look at the paper I'd picked from Greco's pocket. It was all I wanted. The names were there. Ali Alkar, El Faroon, Pasha, Benny Christian, and my name next, all crossed off. And a new name added below, Ahmad Nagin. Well, it meant no more to me than the rest, but a phone directory told me there was just one Ahmad Nagin listed in Cairo, so I was in luck. I lost no time in getting to his place on the Sharia El Mahdi. It turned out to be a poultry shop. Nobody was up front, so I tried the door to the back room. A little man with a thin beard and the fez was puttering around some loaded chicken crates stacked high along the wall. Ah, oh, let me read you a fendi. Are uh, you Ahmad Nagin? All right, you say. Ahmad Nagin, the poultry merchant? Yeah. We uh, met before somewhere. My name's Jordan. Jordan? Your face is familiar, but at the moment I do not recall. Wait a minute. A shoemaker, a pasha, a coptic, a cafe owner, and a poultry merchant. A courtroom five years ago. Oh, but of course it's Fendi Jordan. 
Together we were key witnesses at the trial of the despicable Felix Mandel. Sure, Mandel. I should have remembered that voice. Oh, it was something truly to remember, was it not? The shouting Mandel protesting his innocence of the murders, the alibis of his lying witnesses. But then, when we, the respected men of Cairo, told what we knew, Mandel's fate was sealed, was it not? Sure, it was our testimony that convicted him. Yes, indeed. Such rage I will never forget. All his idle threats as they took him away. No, they weren't idle threats, Ahmad. The murderer said many things to us in hatred, but we... What did you say? Felix Mandel meant every word of it. He's broken out of prison. He's loose. He's in Cairo, and he's out to kill every man who had anything to do with his conviction. But that is impossible. No sane man would dare... Yeah, that's right. No sane man. Mandel's already at work. He's killed three of his prey. Tried for me last night. Now you're next. But... But it cannot be. Mr. Jordan, I will tell him. I did not wish to speak against him. I was forced to do it. It was you and the others who convicted him. I will tell him... Oh, cut it, Ahmad. You think you'd listen to anybody? Mr. Jordan, you must help me. Please defend me. I do come well. Ah, we'll do better than that. We're going right to the police. The police. That is it. Yes, we will go to the police. Now, at once. Mandel... Felix Mandel! Mandel, no! Do not shoot no in Allah's name, no! Please, I did not wish to witness this! Ahmad slumped away from the door. I dived in Mandel's gun clattered away. I slammed him against some tottering chicken crates, and then we were down and rolling. Finally, I was on top of him with my hands at his throat. I was about to end it. When a heavy step at the door turned my head, and there was Sergeant Greco. Oh, he's going on in here. Stop in the name of the law. All right, Greco, I'll handle him. So, Mr. Jones, and it is you. Get up, Greg. Don't pass that. Let's throw me. Greco. For the last time, Mr. Jones, get up. Greco yanked on me just enough to loosen my grip, and that's when Mandel twisted from under me, grabbed the gun, and was on his feet and packing up. <laughs> now, Jordan, this time I do not fail. See what you've done, Greco? Tell him, Jordan. He's the man you'll want, Greco. You even took the list of names from Jacques's body without Lieutenant Haman's knowing. Hoping you could win yourself a gold star. So, you took it from me. And this man... Yeah, he's Felix Mandel. Just claimed another victim there on the floor. Oh, oh, oh I, 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 I did not know. Well, uh, you know now. Enough, Jordan. I must dispose of you now and get on with my work. There's so many... They who spoke so bravely against me in the court, but now they turn to groveling cowards in the face of death. You're not too careful who you shoot at, are you? Even innocent people like Jacques Bellon. Jacques Bellon. Innocent, you say? <laughs> Jordan, I will tell you something. Yeah? The man who so sadly died in your place was at the cafe tambourine to kill you. You sure about that? Of course. Did I not send him there? I wonder if his wife knew. No. No, that was all I needed. His fear that I would tell her of his past life as one of my gunmen. So I sent him to do my killing. And I paid him well. Yeah, I saw some of that money. Ah, but his fear was too much. I knew I had to follow to see that my work was done. <laughs> Is it not the paradox? The shock below should be lying in the drunken sleep where I thought I'd find you. <laughs> but now, John... We stand face to face. Now I will be sure. I'd stall as long as I could. I'd been watching the chicken crates tottering behind Mandel where we'd slammed them against the wall. They needed one more push. Mandel did it as he backed against them and raised the gun. The chicken crates began to topple and I dodged away as they came out. First one caught Mandel.
Kendall on the head, and the rest piled on top. I moved in, grabbed the gun, dragged Kendall to his feet, but he didn't stay there. His knees crumbled, and he fell back to the floor. And I looked around just in time to see Greco poke his head up through a broken crate. A very live rooster perched on his shoulder, picking at the tassel on his battered face. Well, there was some crowing after that, but not from Sergeant Greco. taxi ride to police headquarters. Greco, Felix, Mandel, and me. Lieutenant Haman sent some men out to take care of the late Ahmad Nagim. Greco hurried off real quick, saying he wanted to clean up. And after booking Mandel and putting him on the grill for a while, the lieutenant slammed a cell door behind him. And so much for Felix Mandel, Mr. Jordan. Yeah, that about closes the book. So in many ways, Mr. Jordan, you need no longer feel responsible for the death of Jacques Bellon. Knowing now that he had actually come to kill you. And he was really one of Mandel's gang before Mandel was sent up, huh? Yes. In fact, he spent a short time in prison himself. But it seems that since his marriage a year ago, he tried to live a circumspect life. Till Mandel broke out, came back and put him to work. Yes, the threat of what might be revealed to his wife and the offer of money were too much for the unfortunate man. Oh, uh, come into my office, Mr. Jordan. There are still a few questions to complete my dossier on Mandel. Uh, why not get it all from Greco? You know, it's most interesting how Greco was so anxious to get away just now. He had so very little to say. Well, he had a big night. So it seems. Now, Jordan, how did you and Greco learn that the poultry merchant Ahmed Nagim was to be the next victim? Hmm? Well, I'm waiting. Oh, luck you've got, Mandel. Isn't that enough? Uh, could it be that a list of names was left on the body of Jean Pelot? And that it was kept from me? Oh, Lieutenant. And why would anybody do a thing like that? <laughs> Jordan, one could hardly say that you have any great respect for Sergeant Greco. However, he tries hard. Indeed, he does. Very well, I shall ask no more questions. For uh, your sake and his, Mr. Jordan. Uh, uh, you already promised, Lieutenant. No more questions. Hmm. Yes. You may go, Jordan. I shall give Greco your uh, regard. Rocky Jordan is a weekly presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Flake presents Believe It or Not.
40% Brand Blakes bring you Bob Ripley with more of his amazing Believe It or Not with B.A. Rolfe and his orchestra and lovely Linda Lee. Yes, sir, life is swell when you keep well. And say what a really swell cereal post Brand Blakes are. So crunchy. And what a wonderful nut-like flavor. And then those extra benefits. The benefits of Brand. So many of you may need to help you keep fit naturally. So why don't you join the millions who enjoy post Brand Blakes every day for their delicious flavor for their extra benefits. Yes, life is well when you keep well. And here's that friendly Frank free-handed fryer of fruitful fretted friction brought bright-fronted phrase, believe it or not, Bob Ripley. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to the program tonight. These are historic days. Last week, four men gathered around a green-covered table in Munich, Germany, and never in all history have four men been watched with more anxiety by the eyes of the entire world. Now let me draw back the curtain of time, only 26 years, if 1912. The place is still Munich. As our scene opens, a ragged young man with his clothes in tatters timidly enters the shop of a little Jewish house painter. He knocks at the door and waits tremblingly in the doorway. Please, my hand. Are you Herr Gustav Heller? The owner of this shop? Well, what is it? Uh, I wonder. I would like to ask if, if you could give me any kind of employment. Anything. Are you a painter? Have you got references? No, I'm a stranger in Germany and I... Well, why should you come here to me? I'm an Austrian and I heard that you, gracious sir, are an Austrian too. Oh, give me a chance. I'll work for my food. As my countryman, won't you? Please. Well, I don't know. Oh, please. If I don't get some work, the police will deport me back to Austria. Oh, I want to stay in Germany. I'll never forget this favor. All right, I'll take you. Maybe I can make a painter out of you. What's your name? My name is Adolf. Adolf Hitler. The year is 1898. The place, the little town of Kaffentras in southern France. A 14-year-old baker's boy is loading a donkey cart with bread and rolls and rolling it along a narrow cobbled street. He is shouting his wares. Fresh rolls, fresh bread, fresh nice rolls here. Fresh rolls, fresh... Look out there, look! No, no, no. Oh, oh, monsieur, let me help you up. Are you hurt? No, 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 I'm all right, but I'm worried about you. I, uh, I'm not a very good bicycle rider, otherwise I would not have bumped into you. Uh, I'll pay for the damage. It was my fault. Oh, no, monsieur, I will not let you pay. Oh, but you must let me do something. Uh, what do you want most? Mm, what do I want? The impossible. I want to be an educated man. Not a baker. Yeah, so you would like to be an educated man. 
Well, I am a professor at the Lyon High School. Oh, really? You come and see me tomorrow, and we will make arrangements for your education. I am Edouard Herriot. Oh, I have the same Christian name as you. I am Edouard, too, monsieur. Edouard Daladier. And as a result of this strange meeting, both of these men, Edward Elio and Edward Delegier, became prime ministers of France. Now, let's move the clock forward. The time is 1937. The place, London. Our scene is a beautiful lake in St. James Park. Suddenly, a splash. Loud cries for help are heard. We see a man pushing his way through the crowd. What's the matter? There's a young fellow falling in the lake. I think he's drowning. Good heavens, what are you all waiting for? Here, hold my umbrella. Oh, my. Oh, oh the old bloke. That fat fellow is. Here now, what's happened? I'm a reporter from the Daily Express. A young fellow falls in the lake, and an old gentleman comes along, dives in, and saves his life. Blimey, what an hero. Look at him. Walking off there, dipping wet in his top coat and cutaway, like nothing happened. I wonder who he is. Oh, it's just like him. That's the way he does everything. Never thinks of himself. Come on, tell us who it is. That's our own Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain. What a story! And now the time is 1906. The place, the city of Geneva, Switzerland. Two policemen are patrolling their appointed feet along a deserted alley. Ah, la vie. At two o'clock in the morning, some people sleep, and at two o'clock in the morning, some people are policemen like us, no? <laughs> Look here. Here is something. A man's leg sticking out of this rubbish container. Huh? Let me see. <laughs> it belongs to some fellow in there. Hello, you. Get up there. What? What is it? What are you doing sleeping here? Why don't you go home? But I have no home. Ah, you are not Swiss. You are Italian. You have to come with us. Oh, please don't arrest me, signori. I don't want to go back to Italy. They'll put me in the army. I don't want to fight. I'm a pacifist. You will have to come along. What is your name? Uh, Benito Mussolini. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. Those four men were the same four men who sat around the green-covered table in Munich only last week, and upon whose shoulders rests the future of Europe and the fate of the world. Believe it or not. Rolf and his orchestra with lovely Linda Lee turn to Irving Berlin for inspiration and entertain our post-Brandblick audience with Change Partners. 
must you dance every dance with the same fortunate girl you have danced with her since the music began won't you change partner and dance with me must you dance Quite so close With your lips Touching her face Can you see I'm longing to be in the place Won't you change partner And dance with me That's hard to sit this one out And while you're Another big day coming up tomorrow, and I'm raring to go. Yep, no matter how you look at it, friends, life is lots of fun when you're feeling top. Or again, as we put it, life is swell when you keep well and say, isn't that just about the size of it? When you're feeling well, on your toes, it's a wonderful old world, full of excitement and full of fun. And folks, everybody knows the benefits of brand. Well, every day, millions of mothers all over the country give their family these benefits in a really delicious cereal, Post Bran Flakes. For Post Bran Flakes do more than bring you the benefits of bran. Here's a cereal with a swell flavor you're bound to enjoy. You'll smack your lips over these crunchy golden flakes. They're so tempting and different. So tomorrow morning, why don't you pitch into a bowl of delicious Post Bran Flakes, the cereal that's more than a cereal. Let the whole family enjoy Post Bran Flakes regularly every morning for their wonderful flavor and their extra benefits. Believe me, you'll agree yourself. Life is swell when you keep well. 
Yes, sir. Next week, I mean next Wednesday, the world champion New York Yankees meet the fighting Chicago Cubs. And this year's Yankee team has been rated one of the greatest hitting teams in all history. And the one person closer to the mighty Yankee bats than anyone else is standing here beside me now. Ladies and gentlemen, the most envied boy in the world today, the bat boy for the New York Yanks, Timmy Sullivan. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Timmy, uh, tell our listeners just what a bat boy does. Well, I take care of more than 150 bats and keep them in good condition for the ball players. All the bats are different. Yes, but who uses the heaviest bat? Joe DiMaggio, and he's knocked out 32 homers with it. Well, how about Gary? He's using a lighter bat this year. I notice he's been hitting lighter, too. Yeah, but he whammed out 29 home runs, though. But who does use the lightest bat? Flash Gordon. He's the lightest man on the team, but boy, can he smack him. 24 homers this year. Well, hitting him like that, it's no wonder the Yankees have made 174 home runs in one season. And to me, I know ball players are notoriously superstitious. How about the Yanks? For one thing, no player will let another player use his bat. No. Lefty Gomez is the only exception. They don't mind letting Lefty have their bat. Why? <laughs> because he seldom hits anything anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But the worst piece of bad luck is lying one bat across another on the ground. Yes, I remember that from the days when I used to play ball. Uh, tell us, uh, Timmy, do the ball players of today still rub their bats with a bone? They still do, Mr. Ripley. Most players on the Yankee club polish their bats with a large ham bone, which I bring from the butchers. They think it hardens the bats. <laughs> uh, Timmy, during the, the three years you've been with the Yankees, they've won two World Series. I think you're a good luck mascot. Well, I don't like to boast, Mr. Ripley, but I think we'll take those Cubs four straight and win the third World Series in a row. And good luck to you, Timmy. And may the best team win. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard from Timmy Sullivan, bat boy and mascot of the New York Yankees, who on Wednesday entered their third straight World Series. And if the Yanks win this time, they will be the first team in baseball history to win three World Series in a row. Believe it or not. the most delightful experiences that a man can know is that of telling a story to an eagerly listening child. But in no case has a story told solely for a child's enjoyment had such an amazing history as the one which I would like to tell you about now. The time, July the 4th, 1862, the place the Cherwell River, where it flows softly through the little town of Oxford, England. It's a hot summer afternoon. As our scene opens, we find Charles Dogson, a young teacher of mathematics, rowing a small boat lazily along the stream, and his companion is a little ten-year-old girl called Alice Liddell. <laughs> Uncle 
Uncle Charles? Yes? I want you to tell me another story. Another story? What kind of a story shall it be this time, Alice? This time, I want a funny story with lots and lots of nonsense in it. I love nonsense, Uncle Charles. Don't you? Yes, Alice. Nonsense is the most sensible thing in the world. Let me see. A nonsensical story with a little girl in it, of course. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll call her... You'll call her Alice, if you please. Of course. Shall we start the story like this? Alice was beginning to get very tired. Once or twice she had peeped into the book her sister was reading. Rule 42. All persons more than a mile high to leave the court. (laughs) I'm not a mile high, said Alice. You are, said the king. And the queen said, you're nearly two miles high. (laughs) That's the oldest rule in the book, said the king. That's wonderful, Uncle Charles. I'd like to be a mile high. You would? Alice, I hadn't realized how late it is. Oh, Mother won't mind. She knows how I love stories. Oh, Uncle Charles. Yes? I shall hate the summer to be over because we won't be able to go rowing anymore. And then I won't hear your stories. Oh, Mother, I'm so happy. Look what Uncle Charles gave me for Christmas. A book? Why, how nice. But, Mother, it isn't an ordinary book. Look, it has pictures and conversations. And Uncle Charles wrote it for me himself in his own handwriting. It's the story he used to tell me last summer. I think that was awfully sweet of him. And look what he wrote on it. A Christmas gift to a dear child in memory of a summer day. It's about a little girl a mile high and a white rabbit and a mad hatter and a walrus that talks. It's a book full of the funniest things. I'm going to keep it forever. Sixty-six years went by. The time is now February 1928. Alice is now a woman 78 years old. As our scene opens, we find her entering Southby's, the famous London auctioneer. Yes, madam, what can I do for you? I have a a manuscript here. I would like you to sell it for me. Well, uh, may I see it? Yes, certainly. Here it is. Mm. I never thought I would pass through this manuscript. I've treasured it all my life. But time hasn't been kind. Two sons killed in the war. Uh. I have many obligations. That's why I brought it here. Hmm. There we are. Now, let's see. A Christmas gift to a dear child in memory of a summer's day. Alice was beginning to get tired. Why, it couldn't be. Can you sell it for me? Can I sell it? Why, this manuscript is a great literary treasure. I shall arrange for an auction as soon as possible, madam. Now, how much do I beat for lost 319? 5,000 pounds. 5,000 pounds, I beat. 5,000 I've offered. 
I'd be 5,000 pounds. 12,500 pounds. 12,500 pounds. I'd be to a hero. 15,500 pounds, bitch. 15,400 pounds. 15,400 pounds. 15,400 pounds. I'd be for the first time. For the second time, 15,400 pounds. For the third and last time, do I hear any more? Sold. Sold for 15,400 pounds to Dr. Rosenbach. Congratulations, Dr. Rosenbach. And so, one of the greatest literary treasures was sold for the record price of 15,400 pounds, or $77,000. The buyer of this manuscript has done me the honor of being my guest tonight. He is the foremost collector and dealer of rare books in the world today. His transactions have never been equaled in magnitude, and in the drama I've just presented, he played his own part as a successful bidder at the auction. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach. Good evening. Good evening, Dr. Rosenbach. You paid $77,000 for that manuscript. Well, won't you tell our listeners what was that manuscript? It was the original manuscript what is probably the most beloved story in the world today, Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland. Well, I would say that that manuscript should be priceless. You know, Dr. Rosenbach, in many cases, I find the stories about books are real, believe it or not, themselves. As a matter of fact, I have a believe it or not that happened in your own town of Amaranek. You have? I like to hear it. Mr. John C. Clay, yeah. who was a neighbor of yours, happened to read a magazine article of mine in which I told of buying the signature of Button Gwinnett for $21,500. Oh, yes, I know. Button Gwinnett was one of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence, wasn't he? After reading my article, Mr. Clay remembered that his family had in its possession an old paper with Gwinnett's signature. After a long search, he found the letter in one of the outhouses on his farm. Well, how much did you pay, Mr. Clay, for this signature, uh, Dr. Rosenberg? I paid $51,000 for it because it was dated in July 1776, only eight days after the declaration was signed. Yes. Two days after Mr. Clay found this wonderful signature, the building in which it had been stored for years, burned to the ground, believe it or not. And so, uh, if he hadn't read your article, that signature, and incidentally, $51,000 would have gone up in smoke. Exactly. Dr. Rosenbach, I thank you for coming here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard from the world's foremost collector and dealer in rare books, whose collection is valued at millions and includes some of the rarest treasures of the present and the past. Dr. Rosenbach paid as high as $106,000 for the Gutenberg Bible, $77,000 for a manuscript of Alice in Wonderland, 
and $51,000 for two words. The signature of Button Gwinnett. Believe it or not. Often his orchestra uses a syncopated stethoscope to find out what goes on here in my heart. has been coming here with his interesting Believe It or Not for over a year without interruption. All during the summer when most of us were taking it easy, Bob and Linda Lee and B.A. Rolfe and the rest of the folks on the show have been right on the job week in and week out. But now the time has come for them all to take their well-deserved vacation. Bob, just what do you plan to do, hmm? Well, the time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and silly I mean, uh... Lord, the time has come for me to go traveling again. Well, Bob, we'll miss you, but I hope you have a grand vacation. Believe it or not, I never had a vacation in all my life. What, what are you going to do then? Well, I'm going on another, believe it or not, expedition in search of strange and unusual things around the world. Traveling sounds like a swell vacation to me. Well, sometimes it's hard work to get to some of the out-of-way places, Linda. However, after two years on the air, I think I'm going to try and enjoy myself this time. Where are you going, Bob? I'm going around the world for one thing. You know, Linda, I've located a set of sextuplets, all living. You mean six living children born at once? Yes. Gee, that beats the Dion Quintuplets. And I've arranged to go on an expedition in Upper Burma to find a tribe of men with tails. And the white crow, which is king of a nation, I'm going to try to bring back the golden mummy of an emperor. And if any better, believe it or not, can be found, then I'm going to go out and try to find them. I'm sure you will, Bob, and good luck to you. And, Bob, the makers of Post Brand Blake sincerely hope that you have a mighty good time and a really good rest. 
And that certainly goes for you, Linda, and UBA, and every last one of the folks who've helped to make this program so enjoyable. And at the same time, thanks to all of you for the many new friends you've helped win for Post Brandley. Bob, this is the time for your usual good night. But on behalf of all of us who worked together so happily for the last 65 weeks, I'd like to take over here. Okay, Pierre. We'd like to give you our kind of goodbye, a musical one, to carry over until we welcome Bob Ripley back in January. So, Bob, to you, from Linda Lee, Fort Bond, and the Orchestra Boys, the cast, and all of us who have helped to work with you, good luck, old man, and God bless you. Till we meet again. Starting next Monday over most of these stations at the same time, Al Pierce and his gang will be back on the air. Be sure to tune in next Monday night at this same time. This is the National Broadcasting Company. you by transcription to join the chase. There's always the hunter and the hunter, the pursuer and the pursued. It may be the voice of authority or a race with death and destruction, the most relentless of the hunters. There are times when laughter is heard as counterpoint and moments when sheer terror is the theme. blessed with more than just an ordinary memory. But I know I shall never forget the date, the exact hour and minute and second when I made up my mind to end it with my wife. It was in Istanbul, of all places, on a trip around the world. I had managed to sneak away from Martha, my wife, for another clandestine meeting with a girl I adored, Sybil, the most graceful creature who ever walked this earth. And as we sat in the shadows of a small park, our hands clasped, we could hear the voice of a muezzin calling from some nearby minaret. George. Yes? What are you thinking? I'm thinking of the day that I first met you, Sybil. It's only been three weeks since I joined the boat at Hampton. Three weeks? They've been glorious. And I objected when my wife proposed this trip. The tour around the world with Martha, what could be more boring? And then we met aboard the boat. And here we are. Yes, here we are. Where do we go from here, George? 
go. Well, we don't go anywhere. You mean you're not going to tell her? About us? Naturally. Why, I can't do that, Sybil. Why not? Why, just can't, that's all. And there's no need to. You said you were coming to the States when this trip is over. We can see each other freely, darling, without George. that. Well? Your wife's very rich, isn't she? Well, I told you that... And you hate to lose her money. Oh, now, Sybil. If you divorce her, she'll cut you off without a cent. Does it mean so much? I don't quite follow you. We can get along without her money, can't we? You're intelligent, attractive. And I can find a job of my own in your United States. Oh, that's ridiculous. Is it? Now, let's not be silly about this. Darling, I... Where are you going? Back to the ship. Alone. And I think it's time you went back to your wife and her money for good. She just didn't understand, that's all. One does not leave a woman like Martha very easily. And besides... Martha depended on me. She had not been well, and she... Oh, why lie to myself? Martha's feelings didn't enter into it. Sybil was right. It was Martha's money I hated to lose. Martha was waiting for me in our stateroom, as usual, with her mouse-colored hair done up in curlers and an inch of cold cream smeared over her sallow, homely face. George? Are you still up, Martha? Where have you been? Just seeing the town, that's all. You said you didn't want to leave the boat this afternoon. Do you expect me to remain here on the ship and bore myself to death? Oh, now, don't be angry. I'm not angry. My headache's gone. I'll be fine tomorrow, George. Then I want you to show me the city. The ship doesn't leave until midnight, and I've arranged for a guide. I want to see the mosque and the minaret. Well, then you won't need me. Your guide can show you around satisfactorily. And... Well, if you're going to be difficult about it, very well, then. I was thinking of buying you those cufflinks you wanted. But I'm in no mood to go shopping alone. The, uh, sapphire cufflinks, Mother? Yes. You always take me so seriously. You know very well I'll go with you tomorrow. You know what I want to see most, George? The red minaret. The one that Sultan built 500 years ago. They allow visitors to the top. And you can get a marvelous view of the entire city. Well, I saw it from the outside this afternoon. It's never used anymore. It looks as though it's on the verge of crumbling. Typical tourist come on. I don't think it'll be very interesting. But they say it's so high. Oh, about five or six stories. And you've got to climb on foot all the way, frankly. It's... it's what, George? Now that I think about it again, of course. Why not? We could get some good pictures from the top. That's just what I'd love to do, George. Uh, do we actually need a guide, though? Well, could we see it alone? Well, it might be fun. Just you and I, Martha, with the romantic view of old Istanbul... Let's go up together with no one else, shall we? I love you when you're like this, George. So thoughtful. Yes. I'm very thoughtful, my friend. When it comes to you. How, how much longer, George? Well, I can see daylight above us, Martha. Just a few feet more. Oh, the steps are so steep. They're easy for you, of course, but... Well, there's 15 years between us. Oh, well, you're a lot younger than I am in every way but years, Martha. Come on, we're nearing the top. Two, three, five, and here we are. <gasps> the view was breathtaking. Below us was Istanbul, with its hundreds of mosques, lovely harbor, and it was wonderful to see. 
providing you didn't let your eyes look down below the minaret to the street, because the effect was startling. It was at least a 200-foot drop, and the short stone shelf around the top only came to one's knees. A stiff breeze was blowing, and it almost seemed that if you got too close to the edge, the wind could send you hurtling down, down, down. George! Yes? Oh, isn't it magnificent? Yes. We seem to be all alone, high above the world. Oh, I must take a picture. Uh, this, uh... This seems like a likely spot. Uh, that pillar is in your way, Martha. Don't you think you'd get a better shot if you stepped closer to the edge? Here? Yes, there. Oh, the wind's so strong. Maybe you'd better come and hold me, George. You'll be all right. Just take the picture from there. All right, George. As she placed the camera to her eye, she inadvertently moved to the very edge of the short protecting ledge. She didn't see the loose stone, just an inch from her left foot. But I saw it, and said nothing. At that moment, a gust of wind, stronger than the rest, whistled through the minaret. She moved her foot to regain her balance, and it came in contact with a loose stone. As the stone gave way, she tripped and started to topple. She tried to regain her balance, but couldn't. Frozen, I watched her twist around and face me. Her pictures agonized with fear. And then... I didn't push her, did I? Even if I had the idea, I did not go through with it. It was the wind and the loose stone, I tell you. Save me, George! George! I'll admit, that was something I didn't bother to do. George Thurston? Yes. I am Captain Mohammed Beige, Turkish police. I know this is no time for questions, but routine is routine. You understand? Yes, of course. You were alone on top of the minaret when the accident occurred. Yes, we were. Without a guide? Yes. You were standing how far away, may I ask, when the accident occurred? About um, as far away as you are now. And you couldn't save her. But don't you think I would have if I... Of course, of course. I'm merely trying to get the precise details concerning the accident. Why do you keep repeating the word accident like that? It was an accident, was it not? Naturally. Your wife was rich, Mr. Thurston? What has that got to do with it? Please, don't take offense. This is an unpleasant task for both of us, and I dislike it as much as you do, my friend. Well, then let's get it over with. It is over, Pasha. It... What did you call me? Pasha. A term we Turks often like to use in connection with foreigners. <laughs> it is an honorary title, and we find you Americans are amused by it. Is the interview over, Captain? I think so. Well, now get back to the ship. One moment. Haven't you forgotten something? Forgotten something? Your wife must be buried. She's still in the morgue. I'll arrange for that. Now. And then uh, you will leave with your ship when it sails for Beirut at midnight. Well, of course. Nothing to keep me here, is there? Nothing. Bon voyage, Pasha. He 
bowed slightly and smiled. A short, fat man with a large mustache and skin like horsehide. And then I suddenly discovered I hated the very sight of him. That he frightened me, too. We're moving, George. Oh, thank goodness. I am so glad to get away from Istanbul. I guess you want to leave the boat at Beirut. Leave? What for? Surely you won't get very much pleasure out of the trip after what's happened. There's no need to leave, Sybil. Just as soon continue. I've killed my lawyers in New York, and they're going to have the will probated and settle Martha's estate. It'll take a little time. But it'll be over when I arrive back home. Or, I should say, when we arrive back home, Sybil. What are you looking at, my dear? That man behind you. He's been watching us for the past five minutes ever since we came out here on deck. What man? Mohammed Bey, the captain. What was he doing aboard the ship? For a moment I felt weak, helpless. And then I remembered. I had nothing to fear. My hands were clean. The entire affair was accidental. Uh, Sybil, would you mind going into the salon for a few moments? I know that man, and I'd like to speak to him alone. Who is he? Uh, he's just an official. Please, I'll see you later on. It's after midnight. I think I'll go to bed. Kiss me goodnight, George. For heaven's sake, not here, you fool. George! I'll see you in the morning. Good night. Good evening, Pasha. Just what are you doing aboard this ship, Captain? Sailing like you, Pasha. Are you trying to be funny? As a matter of fact, I'm attending a conference of police in Lebanon. Beirut, to be exact. And as I have some time, I decided to travel by boat and relax. Well, I hope that you have a pleasant trip. Pasha. The name is Thurston. George Thurston. And... That attractive woman I just saw. Mind now. your own infernal business, do you understand? Good night. Good night, sir. I behaved like a fool and I knew it. You think I had some kind of a guilt complex the way I let him face me? I was innocent, wasn't I? I never touched her. I... Well, I don't have to prove that to myself. That night, I couldn't get to sleep. It was hot inside my cabin, and the fan barely stirred the stifling air. I took a sleeping pill, and it finally calmed me down. As I slept, I dreamed. If I had known before just what that dream would be, I'd have been happy to spend a sleepless night. I dreamed of Martha, and the way she looked at me before she died. I saw her again on an empty street, and I turned away to hurry in another direction. She was following me, chasing me, with her arms outstretched and agony of horror on her face, and I ran faster, faster, until I thought my heart would burst. And then... Save me, George! George! I woke in a pool of perspiration, and yet I felt as though my body would seize in ice. Good morning, Sybil. Good morning, George. May I sit here and have breakfast with you? If you wish. Did you sleep well last night? You look so tired. I slept very badly. I had a dream. Dream? I just as soon not repeat it. At any rate, I... Good morning, Parson. Good morning. 
Uh, we'd rather be alone. I am Captain Bates, mademoiselle. I played your escort. But they've forgotten the amenities. Uh, this is Miss Sybil Smith. Sybil Smith. A pleasure, Miss Blake. How did you, Captain? Uh, have you finished your breakfast, Sybil? Oh, yes, George. Uh, let's go out on deck, shall we? With your coffee. I'll have it served out then. Come on. Come on. Nice to have met you, Captain. The pleasure was mine, Miss Smith. I'll see you later on. Come on, Sybil. Let's get some air. What's the matter? Well, George. I'm all right now. Why did you do it? Why did I do what? Tell him my name was Smith. Oh. Well, I... I thought he had no right to barge in on it that way, and I just wanted to bake him. Well, who is he? He's just a Turk. An army captain? Yes, army captain. Let's not talk about him anymore. He's a very dull subject for conversation. George, I... I know what you've been through during the past few days. I'm out of death, upset you, but... Is there something else? What do you mean? You seem to be so nervous. So jumpy. There's something worrying. Nothing. Nothing at all. Let's take a turn around the deck, shall we? Nothing. Nothing was bothering me except... My hands were clean, I tell you. I did not kill her. I did not touch her if she fell. Not saving her was a negative action, not a positive one. It is not the same as the first murder. Dr. Soda Stewart, take it double. How many stories there? She was there. Mohammed. Really? We are becoming friends. You have never used my first name before, Sergeant. What is your game, Captain? My game? I'm sorry if you feel that way. I assure you, I... Oh, by the way, this might interest you, but, uh, what is it? A picture postcard for tourists. Here, yeah, look. It is a photograph of the Red Minaret. What are you trying to do? Sasha, please, there's not a passenger. I'll tear this thing to shreds. From now on, keep away from me, you hear? Keep away! It was a stupid outburst, Valismith. The fellow drove me for it. A moment later, I hurried out of the salon and back to my cabin. I skipped off my coat and tie and lay down on the car. I was exhausted. Spent. And a few minutes later, I was fast asleep. Again, I dreamed. This time, I was on a Turkish roof high above the city. Suddenly, Martha appeared. She floated toward me. Her arms outstretched. And I stumbled backwards, back, back, back to the edge of the roof. And she followed, staring at me with those remorseful eyes. And then just as I reached the edge, I stepped aside and Martha floated past me. Oh, save me, Captain Bates. What's Captain Bates got to do with anything? 